You're on Community Radio 2XX, you're on Behind the Lines, and you're with Scotty. Today on the show, we have Jerry Gillespie and Mal Williams, both from Zero Waste International Trust. Uh, Jerry's also doing some work with Resource Recovery Australia, and Jerry had quite a big hand in the uh, in the zero waste efforts at this year's Majors Creek Folk Festival, which is where we met up and got yarning. Um... Well, welcome to the show, guys. How are you? Good, good thanks, Scotty. Yeah, good. Um, so, yeah, yeah, waste, waste. What is what is waste? You guys uh, probably well, we generally define it as a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> a mixed materials, basically. Anything that's all mixed up is waste because, it, generally speaking, people want to throw that away. Yeah, right. And is it is it waste because it can't be used or it's hard to use? Or? No, our, our focus generally is that if you source separate everything, if you separate things into their different categories, they become incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. Mal's been involved in a few programs uh, in Wales and in the UK, one particularly called Real Recycling, which actually increased the value quite substantially of materials that they collect. Yeah, right, right. So um, I guess, yeah, waste, it comes from somewhere. Is there, I think the industry talks about a waste stream. What's... What's the idea of the waste stream? Well, that's what we're talking about, really. If, if you actually keep the material separate, paper is paper, cans are metal, plastic is plastic, seven different polymers agreed, but still identifiable, uh, glass is glass, and so on. 93, 94% of everything that we use is actually recoverable and reusable. Yeah. So you could actually achieve zero waste simply by redefining what that is when you put it out into different bins mm. it's no longer waste there's no litter bins it's just paper bins and plastic bins and can bins and things and, and the interesting thing in that context too it, it, in australia in particular and it does vary a little bit from r- different places around the world different collection techniques and different regulations but in australia around about 70 percent of the material in any bin at any time is organic material mm-hmm. and the big crisis we have in this country is that around about 75% of the 455 million hectares we have under agriculture, on average, they have it ha- that land has less than 1%. So we have an organic uh, soil organic matter crisis, and yet we're spending something like $11 billion a year handling our 60 million tonnes of waste, and that very large component of it could go directly back into our soils. So that's the thing that we're really focusing on with the Zero Waste International Trust now. Yeah, right. So you say organic waste. What? Uh, why is it called organic? Well, it's food waste, anything that's grown, basically, anything that's come from trees and, or plants. Um, so, And that, in, in some areas of Australia, we would argue should include paper and cardboard. If you're, say, for example, in Condoblin, the biggest single material stream that they have at the moment because they live in such a remote area is packaging. They also have enormous amounts of sewage waste and there's an agricultural crisis around that land. It's constantly in drought. It's desperate for water. Um, They have all this cardboard and paper that can be mixed in with their toilet waste and turned into a product and given or sold to local farmers rather than putting it on trucks, driving it all the way to Sydney in a a five or six hour trip, putting it on the ship, sending it all the way to China and then buying it back as cardboard boxes to take all the way back to Condoblin. It's just a crazy loop as it is at the moment. Um, All what we've got to do is think about what what is the (coughs) principal issue. So... The sort of thing that Mal and I talk about is that materials are materials and you need to identify that best possible use for that material in the situation that you're in where it actually adds value to the local community. Mm, mm. And do you see this organic 
carbon as a form of energy? Or? Well, we no, we're we're generally opposed to anybody setting fire to anything that's mixed up. Um, resources are far too valuable to to burn them in in terms of energy. Yes, it's about energy, but it's about more about soil energy. So, if we can get material, organic material, back into soils and lift soil organic matter, that lifts soil biology. It reduces the need for agricultural fertilisers. Um, it ties into all the things that the food movement is currently looking at in terms of increased diversity in their food, increased you know healthy soils healthy food healthy people that's the same sort of direction that we're heading in so how do you get that material as i said into the best possible circumstance for a local community to make value out of it yeah right and what what happens if you get too much carbon i mean we've got all this carbon in our air and it's a big problem well the interesting thing um that there's now a, a lovely um paper by the Rodale institute Rodale institute is an agricultural research center in the united states that has been around since the 1940s um, they have an executive document on their website now that has highlighted in black a paragraph that says we actually have the ability to, to actually take all that CO2 or, or to dramatically lower the carbon that's in our atmosphere by improving our soils. And it's, it's absolutely achievable where we have all these sort of desperate moves by people about, you know, how, how do we control markets and how do we control emissions and all that sort of thing. But hardly anybody ever talks about the soil. The soil is the absolute solution to climate change. Yeah, yeah. Well, a local Canberra guy called Walter Yane is uh, championing the, the idea of doing um, geoengineering by transforming all of planet's agriculture into organic agriculture yes yeah, yeah. i've known walter for many years he's mm. and he is very very focused on that it's, it's an excellent idea well we're, and we're not saying in terms of waste streams that waste streams are a total solution to agriculture but the thing is that if you engage people in the process of source separating their organic waste for use in agriculture you they bring with that will to actually sort separate that material phenomenal social and political power i, I ran a program called city to soil which is still operating in, in the local Pellerin Council area and is operating in, in Armidale very successfully. And the, the local community source separates their food waste and their organic waste. It gets composted and then the product is sold back to people at very, very cheap rates to put back into gardens. Um, it's a phenomenal model, but the exciting thing about it is that people, because people understand that this stuff needs to be cleaned if it's going back into soil because it's going to grow food, once people understand that concept, they really get it because we all have children, we all have grandchildren, and even if we don't have children, we've got an investment in the future because we're all going to end up in the home for the bewildered. You know, So you want to hope that the person looking after you is fit and healthy and has had a good constructive life. So we're very much focused on the idea of how you raise soil quality by returning organic material but also giving empowering people to be part of that process. Yeah, right. So what's what's sort of the difference? Give me the contrast of a soil with no carbon and a soil with, with lots of carbon. And what is lots of carbon? If, if you look at, well, as I said before, something like 75% of Australia's agricultural soils have got about 1% organic material in them. And your options when you're growing food are either to put a hull of a lot of soluble fertiliser into soils so you get plant uptake or to use the solubility mechanisms that are actually in the soil to make nutrients available to plants. So the difference is, if you say around the area or out toward Cowra, and you're trying, and you, it's 
it's quite common out there to have a soil pH of about 4.5, 4.4. 4. Yeah, right. So if your pH is down that low, you've got a very acid soil. The only way you can raise it is to put something in there with a liming effect. So you put lime in there that, that gives you a sufficient sort of pH ability to actually germinate seed and to grow a crop. And then because you've got no biology left in your soil, you've got to feed the thing um, soluble chemical fertiliser. The difficulty with that is you, you're basically using a, a hydroponic system. You're basically using the soil as a root ball holder and hoping the rest of the system works well. And yes, people do get good production rates, but it's a race to the bottom because once you've actually taken that crop off, your pH again starts to crash. Mm. What we're talking about is how do you get a soil stability? How do you ra- If you raise soil organic material, you raise your pH at the same time. You can get a far better, far better pH in your soil, which will reduce your fertiliser use the the interesting thing about that overall is that by change all of this all of these things that we're talking about still require management you still require soil management practices that actually make the soil work for you but the road that we're heading down with agriculture in this country is just a dead end we need to change the way that we look at agriculture and soil production techniques yeah now you said the application of lime kills some stuff in the soil what's the importance of of actual having life in the soil that's the thing that actually delivers you nutrients. So if you've got nutrient availability in the soil and you need life in the soil, the relationship between a plant and the nutrient that's available is totally biological. If you don't have biology in that soil, then the only way you can deliver that nutrient to the plant is actually have it totally water-soluble. So you need to have that biology in the soil to make the whole relationship between nutrient and the plant itself function. Yeah, right. So I guess in your traditional hydroponics scheme you might see a greenhouse and they've got a bunch of very nutrient rich water running down with a few blobs of styrofoam in a channel where your strawberries are growing on and mm-hmm. you're saying that's what the uh, what the soil winds up being if you if you kill all the life in it i remember you're better off drinking the water yeah yeah, I remember, yeah <laughs> new zealand soil scientist said that to me once that you're actually better off to drink the water but now hydroponics has come a long way i mean there are a lot of people now who are using aquaponics which is very successful because you're taking basically the outputs of the fish the manure and the outputs of the fish that are in the water and you're pumping it through um, a plant system to grow vegetables it works very very well and it produces a fairly a very healthy balanced um, crop but uh, the, I, I, can i interrupt the, sorry uh, the, the, the thing that makes a big difference for me and i'm not an expert on farming i hasten to add is that uh, the, the the advocacy that jerry's talking about is to actually have uh, soil that actually uh, farming practices that actually benefit the soil because the soil is the engine of creation uh, whereas the farming practices that we're talking about with all the chemical additions are all the main purpose there is for making profit for companies that sell uh, uh, chemical fertilisers and such like. And they are not, they're amoral as far as the, the, the health of the soil is concerned and whether it's got any sustainability. Sorry, James. You're right. Yeah. So there, there, as Mel says, once you're in that loop where you're actually feeding soluble fertilisers into your plants, you need to actually turn that turn that process around fairly slowly you need to actually slowly build up your soil organic matter um there's people in the local area around here while like um Wilad, um soils out at young who make really really high quality products that people can buy to put in their soils you can get good products here locally from um lantasia make a really good compost product it's available just out at bungandore there's also um people like 
Canberra sand and gravel and cork hills make pretty good products here right in Canberra as well. So people do have the options and, and people locally growing food here can also use no-dig garden systems if you're doing it domestically. Of course, that's very difficult if you're in a large-scale agricultural situation, but the need for change is an absolute imperative. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And, and how, does, how does nature generally deal with waste? Well, it's, nature doesn't have any waste. I mean, um, I can remember Mal and I went to a conference in Rennes in France in 2012 and there was a gentleman there saying that it was the human right of every person on the planet, I think he was from one of the big waste companies, saying yes, yes, everybody yes. should have the right to have a bin outside their house and, and we need to do all this by 2020 or something. And, on. and I said on, on January the 1st, 1788 in Australia, um, we didn't need waste bins because we had zero waste. Aboriginal people just put everything straight back into the system. It just went round and round in circles. It, and nature is very, very good at manipulating those circles to get everything back into a system where one thing feeds another. Um, we've interfered with that system and we need to recognise, as we started off saying, that waste is a mistake. It needs to be corrected and it needs to be corrected very urgently. Mm, what do you reckon the major break was? Sort of, how did, we, how did we get all this stuff that can't be integrated back into the soil. I think it started with the Industrial Revolution, really, and, and once we started making that mistake, and then because of the Industrial Revolution, we moved people into the cities, we had more and more stuff accumulate in one place or another, and then we had those horrible situations in places like London where you had enormous amounts of um, detritus and, and human waste and stuff that you had to deal with. Mm, but people, poo. Absolutely, mm. yeah, mountains of it, um, literally. And, and trying to deal with that stuff, people just didn't have the systems to deal with it. But things have changed a bit now. We can actually, we do have local systems, local methods of dealing with that, those sorts of products and very, very successful and rapid decomposition of products by a whole means of methods, whether it's composting or turn them into liquid fertilisers. But yeah, we, it started, I think, with the Industrial Revolution and just went downhill from there. <laughs> well, we're obsessed with growth. I mean, you talk to any politician and all they're concerned about is, I promise you, 2%, 3%, 5% growth so I can carve up that 3% and give it to my friends. Uh, if you're on one side of the spectrum, you give it to the poor. If you're on the other side, you give it to the one bloke who's pulling your strings. Um, uh, and, and that's the way it's been for what? You, you name the number of years. I, I, I would say a couple of centuries. Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe more, eh? <laughs> yes. to, to go back to the point that you made earlier about energy too, there's, a, there's an interesting story in today's Canberra Times on page 8 where the Prime Minister is talking about we have an, a gas energy crisis in Australia. No, we don't. We don't have a gas energy crisis in Australia at all. We've got a gas theft crisis that's going on with business. Basically, we've got a few people with miners' licences who have put our, our huge amounts of gas that we have available in this country onto the the international market and now they're saying that if we want to buy it back we've got to pay the international price why did we give away our resources in the first place yes it doesn't seem entirely sensible really does it <laughs> yeah so um so you've essentially wound up with, with two types of waste you've got sort of you've got living waste or stuff you know i mean someone early on in my composting career told me if it used to be alive fairly recently then throw it in absolutely it'll be fine but yep. yeah Otherwise, you've basically got stuff that's based on crude oil. Is, is that correct, do you reckon? In lots of ways. Um, if, you look at, if you look at the way that organic material sort of is broken down in different categories, there's, there's all sorts of different regulations and things that Mal has to do with. For, for example, in Australia, 
in the city of the soil system, we collect um, any sort of meat, anything that's been alive can go into that system because it's all composted, and that's what they do out at Lantasia, anything, absolutely anything at all. But if you're in in Europe, the regulations are entirely different, as, as Mel would probably be happy to explain, because they they had the issue of mad cow disease, so you have to go through closed systems or composting processes. Perhaps, Mel, you could explain that a little better. Yeah, I mean, basically, the the, the BSE crisis caused a mad panic that everybody leapt on, uh, and the solution to it was a very expensive way of dealing with uh, animal waste, and there, and there were all sorts of conversations about if anything has the potential to have a crow or a sparrow or a rat or a mouse land on it and then run away, then you, 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 know, you can't have that. So all the food that might have chicken waste in it say let's say from your scraped off your plate um had to go into a vessel to be to be processed and generally speaking that happens either in in vessel composters which are you know more expensive than comp than the normal composting process or anaerobic digestion processes and i think mostly certainly in wales we favor the anaerobic digestion process because that gives you that certainty of being contained but Essentially, it's made everything much more expensive. It's 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 no it's no less feasible to to get good quality out of out of the materials, but more expensively. So if you're lucky here in Australia, you haven't got that. One of the interesting aspects of what Mal's talking about, though, is that if you look at the Australian average, and I think New South Wales is probably the better average. Canberra's a bit unusual in that it, its recycling level is now probably around sort of seventy percent if you take everything into consideration. But if you look at the normal curbside collections and, and domestic collections, the average recycling level in New South Wales would be about 44%, whereas what Mal's out here for this time around, we're doing a couple of workshops, and he's telling people what they've done in Wales is actually with the assistance of the organic material that's going into anaerobic digesters. They've hit, now, what is it, Mal, about 63%? About, we're, we're about to uh, reach the gold medal position in Europe. If Wales was a European country which it isn't because it's the uk that's the member you know <laughs> we're trying to get a welsh membership but nobody understands the language um uh, um we would be you know vying with germany for that gold medal slot and which is which is good and the ma- and the main reason for that is that very early on um we managed to write stuff that focused on getting materials separated at source and realized that the investment we were about to make to get changing from wasting to recycling, if, if I can call it that simply, um, was getting everybody 24-7, everybody in the household, office, factory, farm, whatever, to do this source separation so the materials could be collected and simply sold into market or into a place where they're processed. And that we, we call, I call that clean stream. It's now, it's now, it's now at, attained the, 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 uh, the name of the Welsh collections blueprint and that is actually being um encouraged with all the local authorities in wales and 14 out of the 22 local authorities use it and therefore wales as compared to england and i always like to do this because you know being a rugby player um uh wales is actually marching up the the recycling ladder about two percent a year advancing every every because of what i'm talking about it's more and more people are getting involved all the time and England is at 42% and going backwards, simply because they're still collecting things all mixed up and trying to put things into expensive sorting systems which simply don't work. 
Yeah, right. So um, you mentioned you're doing a lot of this stuff um, anaerobically. What's the difference between aerobic and anaerobic? Well, anaerobic means you're actually processing the, the materials in the absence of air, so oxidation doesn't take place. So you have the opportunity, first of all, when, um, when you're putting it through an AD process, uh, to actually extract energy in the form of gas. And you can, you can use that gas for whatever you want to. You know, you can use it for driving a truck, so, or you can use it for driving the diesel generator that's doing this or that to provide electricity and things. Uh, and then what you get out of the, the back end of the, if you like, the solid stuff, which is, tends to be quite liquid, is uh, a, um, something you can put back onto the land as a, as a, a soil enhancer. It's not as good as compost because it lacks structure, yeah, and structure is very important, as as, as Jerry uh, always emphasises. And um, but it is uh, it it is a way of actually processing the thing in our legislative area safely uh, with this BSE thing. I mean, nobody actually thought that uh, it's a bit of a nonsense this BSE legislation because the, why would anything be in the food in the first place? You, you know, that's what we're trying to protect against, the prions in the food. <laughs> and, well, you know, it's a nonsense because they shouldn't be there anyway. Yeah. yeah, whatever you do, don't look at where that's coming from. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it did frighten people when it happened, and yeah, yeah, that's right. understandable. Yeah. So I guess in Australia we're, we're fairly familiar with anaerobic digesters in the form of septic tanks. Or cows. Cows have got two in, you know, a, a cow's stomach is an anaerobic digester. Mm. belches at the front and farts at the back. And we do have um, some very successful anaerobic programs and, and systems operating in places like Yass and several piggeries that actually use it very successfully, yeah, yeah. and dairy farms as well. Um, so it's not uncommon technology, it's just that in the management of domestic waste and industrial yeah. waste, in most instances here it's just an unnecessary step. Um, and there are other products, like as Mal says, they've done some really good soil, te- um, soil um, trials and things with their anaerobic outputs in the UK and different places now and getting very, very good results. There's, there's a process that we use that uses a lactobacillus inoculant, which is what we used at Majors Creek Festival, um, where if we combine that with that sort of liquid output, we should be able to get even better results because you could then use a great percentage of it as a foliar spray as well. Yeah. Uh, we're using that on processing animal waste, so shred up your animals or... Yeah, any, anything that's organic has got a process that fits it, even even under any regulatory form. And we always insist that people make sure that they're complying with regulations whenever they do anything in regard to organic waste because it's really health issues are very important. But uh, those health issues and regulations can be complied with and still produce very, very good quality products. Yeah, right. Now, I guess Bill Mollison said many years ago that a high enough concentration of anything will become pollution. Yes. Um, and... Yeah, what what makes what makes materials toxic? I mean, you've got to deal with some toxic waste, I imagine. But what what defines something as being toxic in your books? I think that anything is basically anti-life, and, uh, and that includes a lot of the chemicals that we use in agriculture, um, and that includes things like glyphosate. Um, but if you look at the waste stream, as Mo was saying before, there's something like five percent of the total amount of materials that goes into bins anywhere in the world is actually toxic. And it's that really, from our perspective, is more a regulatory issue than anything else. Why is that stuff going into a material stream in the first place? But, yeah, basically anything toxic is anti-life in some form or other, and we have to ask ourselves why it's there. Um, some of those things have very good functions and uses. Some of the things that go into our waste streams like paints and batteries, But and there are efforts around the world now to try and keep some of those things out. But, yeah, toxic stuff is not good news, but then it's only a very small percentage of what we deal with. 
that's where separation at the at the beginning is so important because people say well you know what about watch batteries and things like that and the answer to that is well you put it in the watch battery container you know, <laughs> or you put it in the spectacles container or whatever it is and if you've got a product that somebody's holding up and saying eh, i can't do anything with this then probably that product shouldn't exist you know we do make choices to make these things and we and we make choices as to the materials we use for making these things and whether we stick them together or or, or screw them together so that they can be repaired and repla- and, and um, renovated or, or taken apart for recycling and those are the kind of things which come under the heading of redesign of product and fundamentally at the end of the day as Jerry says there's less than five percent we're concerned about most of it we can actually deal with with the current technology and yet there's some redesign needed yeah right well I guess that brings me to the 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 source of waste that you've mentioned a few times now I mean I suppose during an item's travels through our society it could probably have a few different sources of waste along that travel in the, the manufacturing waste process and then the transport waste. And I think one of the things that is really, really important to focus on now is the life cycle analysis of a product. Um, because, for example, uh, in the UK there's a lot of talk now about how much food waste that supermarkets create because at the end of the day they're throwing stuff away because it's reached its sell-by date or whatever. whole whole load of issues for that. But there's no... No direct mention of the the waste that takes place in the farm or in the warehouse or on the lorry that's just crashed at a roundabout or whatever it is. There's huge amounts of hidden um, wastes. And, you know, we need to get a head head around that whole thing. And zero waste, as far as I'm concerned, is is actually no waste at all anywhere, you know, uh, at any time. And, all right, that sounds a bit purist, but why wouldn't you go for the... Go for, go for the goal. Why not, eh? <laughs> yeah, right. there's, there's a point that Mel makes there too about the the hidden waste that, that I never really picked up. Yeah. And if you look at this constant yeah. hammering we get from people like the Gates Foundation and numerous others around the world that we've all, and we've got to all strive for this new revolution to produce food enough to feed another 2 billion or another 3 billion people and yet at this very time on the surface of the planet where 40% of the total food that we produce goes to waste the people in in the in Africa at the moment who are starving aren't starving because of a lack of food they're starving because of a lack of political control of the circumstance mm. and they're starving because of a lack of gutlessness on behalf of governments to actually do something about it they're allowing control of people's business interests and people's money making processes by very large corporations and individuals to control the life and death of people when there's more than enough food in the world to feed everyone yeah, well, I guess on that note, do you want to just briefly explain the Green Revolution? Oh, there's one of my favourite hates. Um, the Green Revolution did indeed produce 25% more rice in Asia overall, I think, than, than existed previously. But it did that dramatic improvement at the expense culturally of, of the people, at the expense of the soils. You can dramatically increase production by pumping an enormous amount of chemical into something, but it's a bit... Like in many ways, if you've got a six foot five basketballer and you're feeding him nothing but baked beans, you're down the road to disaster. You know, if you keep putting the same thing in all the time and you don't change the system, then it's bound to go bad on you. People never look at, and there are some really lovely research documents that have been done in Malaysia and other countries that were associated with a group called the Asian Network of Organics Recyclers 
who are very damning about the Green Revolution and the cultural effects it had, the, the effects that it had on water supplies, the, the losses of cultural inter- interactions, and some of the things that are happening now in relation to the consequences of that, even some of our aid organisations are still pumping dead money into circumstances where they're following that notion of the Green Revolution. I, I think we, we need to sort of change the words of what we're doing in terms of revolution. We need a biological revolution, not a green revolution. It's in the roots we need a revolution, not in the actual plants themselves. Yes, it's easy to forget that plants have roots. You can't see them, can you? Yep. Yeah, yeah. So um, I guess I just want to backtrack a little bit and um we've got all this this food waste and sort of living i could call it bio waste i suppose or (laughs) bio fertilizer if you look at it that way um and the rest of it you've got all this stuff that we can remanufacture and sort of heat beat and treat i suppose and that's metals and and all your petroleum products is there any other sort of waste streams out there is that basically it your your living waste your no, I think metal that's the whole your, shebang, isn't it? Oil. If you've got metals, glass, and glass is a favourite of Mel. Yes, of course. Um, metals, glass, plastics, paper, and organics in a very general sense, and you just about cover the whole shebang, apart from the odd toxic, of course, and the occasional battery. Mm. And nuclear waste. Ah, we've, got, yes. we've got a drop or two of that. That's all right. Just yeah. put it in bombs and spread it around. It'll be right. <laughs> exactly. That's what they do at the moment. <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> Mel, Mel and I um, humorously discussed one, on one of my visits to Wales... Um, an old um, nuclear plant that they had there and Mel was pointing out that because it's a nuclear waste site, the old closed-down plant, it has to have two security guards there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year for the next 100 years. If you add the cost of that to the cost of the original cost of the nuclear plant, it wouldn't cost-effective in the first bloody place. (laughs) No, I don't think cost-effectiveness, what those things are all about, really. (laughs) No, I think they just wanted the plutonium. Yes. Um... So what do you what, what's uh, how how's all the other stuff that's not sort of living waste dealt with? Well, I mean, the, 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 there are industries that deal with uh, all the, you know, the main materials, paper industry, the, the massive paper mills for for pulp, re, repulping and remaking the papers. Uh, the glass industry has has various ways of you know, melting down and making bottles and, and containers again, and so on and so forth. Uh, metal industry, of course, is. And most of most of those are, are are fairly sophisticated and very they're very keen to get their materials back and to use them. But they all actually sit round a table and say they want the materials clean. If you ask the guy from the paper mill what he wants when you're in the community recycling kind of side of things, he'll say, "Why are you asking me that question? I want paper. Of course, I want paper." And you say, "Well, I'm asking that question because the merchants are telling me I've got to do this and that." And he said, "No, no, I want. I just want paper. I don't want plastic or eggs or." Or anything, you know. I just and it's you have this kind of sterile conversation, and then when you get into the into into the waste industry, they're saying, "No, no, it's much better to collect all the stuff mixed because we can collect in a bin like we've always done, and wish it away from your front door like we've always done. Take responsibility from the householder because we're the experts at dealing with. We're the waste industry. We've got these big trucks that make a lot of noise and wish it off into the distance." And then um, what do they do? Oh, well, up until you know, 20 years ago, they were just burying it in holes, in holes in the ground. And now all they want to do is not bury it in holes in the ground because they can make a lot more money by burning it instead and getting energy from it. And um, so they, worldwide, are actually a, a huge block of vested interest that is actually 
slowing up the progress of recycling wherever they can. And there's a huge amount of effort. You would not believe the amount of effort that goes into that. The lobbyists in Brussels, the lobbyists in America and all over the place protecting the industries. It's, it's an interesting thing too from the perspective of the Zero Waste International Trust. We're actually interested in how the community, once it actually source separates a product, once it's got a really clean stream of materials, how do you add value to that product in your local community? Yes. Is the best option to sell it to a paper company or is the best option to turn it into egg cartons in your own street or is the best option to put it into your compost or is the best option, and I'm talking in terms of value, if you look at Queanbeyan for, for at the moment where I live, it's on a hiding to nothing. It's its waste costs have risen, risen something like 150% since 1991 and they're going to keep going up because the ACT is just going to keep putting up the price of its landfill, which is logical because it's expensive stuff. And our only other option is to take it out to the old woodlawn mine at Tarrago that Veolia now owns and put it in that hole in the ground. So if, if Queanbeyan, for example, now a township of around 44,000 people was focused on the idea of, well, how do we turn this into jobs? I think we could, just using the techniques Mal and I talk about, we could take 60% of that material and turn it into local jobs right smack in the middle of Queanbeyan. And on the one of the things that Mal's out here for this visit is we have a workshop on the 30th of this month in Queanbeyan with the Business Enterprise Centre in Queanbeyan. And anybody's in, interested, welcome to come along. I think it's, I don't even know this is a fee. I think it was actually going to be for free. Um, and so the event will actually discuss what are the best options for the use of the material in your local community. Um, but it's really important from our perspective that we look at how do you create a sustainability hub or a resource park where all of that material gets used in how do you in your local community where you have a local repair shop where you have what used to be a revolve type operation you know where materials are actually used locally value added and you get the local jobs that are actually created in your main street rather than somebody else's yeah that's not a bad idea yeah how do you stop that becoming the sort of the horror scenes you see on the TV of whole communities living on garbage dumps and you know, there's, there's interesting poverty, things you know? about that. We're doing some work in India at the moment where uh, whilst garbage dumps are horrible things, there's a, there's a very large organisation now called the Waste Pickers Alliance that, that operate a global Waste Pickers Alliance because waste pickers exist in the Philippines, in South America. In, we did some work also in, in Cairo, in Egypt, with a group called the Zabaline who are also waste pickers. Um, despite the fact that that seems really horrific, uh, the consequences of what they're dealing with is precisely what Mal says. Somebody's got all the waste and they've banged it all together and somebody's got to pull it apart. But interestingly, in Mumbai, for example, there are a lot of women who work on the local landfill. Um, the, yes, there are deaths every year, but there are hundreds of women there who make the equivalent of around about two English pounds every week out of that landfill. So, and that landfill sustains millions and millions of families. The Indian government, in their zest and zeal to sort of clean up India, are talking about bringing in usually a big bloody engineering firm, and as Mal says, a massive expense to everyone, to clean up this whole big mess. But what are the social consequences? They're much better off, like we are, getting value out of it locally. And yes, it's, it's, it's a horrible way to work for someone to earn a living, but at least they're earning a living. Whereas if a large company come in, comes in and engineers the whole thing and sets fire to the whole lot, um, you lose all that local value. Yeah, I think, and I think the answer to the question, though, in Australia and, uh, <clears throat> and dare I say, you know, the, the non, um, what we used to call third world countries, it, uh, where the waste pickers are predominate, is best exampled by a couple of projects that exist in 
Well, the ones I like to cite are the two in New Zealand, the one in Raglan called uh, Extreme Waste, or Extreme Zero Waste as it's called now. And these guys, 20 years ago, just just interposed themselves between the community and the landfill site, and they stopped everything getting into the landfill site. And now, and it's a really good example of what could happen in any community you want to name, um, that now they have got about a one and a half million New Zealand dollar turnover. They've got something like 22 full-time equivalent jobs, and they've had that for the last 10 years. It's not like a, a flash in the pan. And they're stopping 85% of the, of the materials getting to the landfill site, and they're turning it all into product and selling it in, you know, back into their own community. So that, for me, is the best example of what could happen in a suburb of Auckland or a suburb of Canberra. You know, just choose, choose your size or a village or a township or whatever um, because that actually is a process which is very simple people understand people own it and they will do things for you because they know you you want you know the, the collector that comes to your door says oh can you just do this slightly separately because i need to keep the food stuff clean because we're, we're going to actually be growing food to sell back to you and it's all it all makes sense then and because it's community owned it actually then becomes a community asset and people actually own it. The community owns it in a, in a real sense. And then it, then you can't take it away. And it's part, it's part of the new process. Yeah, interesting. So I see what you seem to be getting at is that what we really need is just a reorganisation of what's going on and yep. we can get rid of some of the horrors in the third world it's, exactly. and create those jobs yep. that you're talking here that are mm. decent jobs yes. and create them over there. and. Yep. Yeah. I don't think yeah. I don't think overall our goal is not to necessarily reduce the waste bill for anyone. This is not going to be cheaper than what any current practice is, although it's a damn sight cheaper than incineration. Yeah. But what what we what we are saying is that that money that's spent, as I said before, it's a, it's now eleven billion dollars in Australia. We could take fifty percent of that and virtually inject that money into agriculture by making compost for agriculture. So it's just a different way of using the same funds, but we get a better return on investment for the community. Yeah, all right, we're going to hear a song now from the formidable vegetable sound system. There's no such thing as waste. All right, well, the formidable, formidable vegetable sound system, wonderful stuff. No such thing as waste from them. Now, they're the sort of mob who could turn up at a festival. I've yep. certainly seen them at a festival, and, and, and uh, it wasn't Majors Creek, unfortunately, but, Jerry, you had a lot to do with the, uh, the waste streams which were coming through the Majors Creek Festival. Yes, we, we, um, this last festival in November, we, we, retire, we put a title on the whole thing of recycling with a focus on food. We actually held a zero waste event there in 2001, but that time we didn't do anything with the toilets, and so this time we were determined to have a whole crack at the entire waste stream. So, yeah, we include the toilets, and and we had a pretty good. It was pretty successful. It could have been better, but there are reasons for that. But yeah, no, it mm. went very well. Yeah, right. Where where did the whole idea of, of, of no waste at festivals sort of come from? Um, I think I think I would I would claim that it was probably the Majors Creek one in in two thousand and one. Um, we've got a little plaque actually on the. If for anybody who goes out there, the rec ground hall's got a little pla- brass plaque that's now fading a little, embedded <laughs> in a, a slab of concrete just beside. That's where the slab of concrete is where we put the last 83 kilos of plastic that we had. Uh, we had to shred it up and then we mixed it in as a substrate in the concrete. But the trouble with that, we realised very quickly, is if you kept burying your plastic in concrete, eventually the entire recreation ground at Majors Creek would have looked like an Italian's backyard. So 
we had to stop that and start to think more seriously about what we were doing with things. But that's it. You want it to look like an Italian's front yard. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Exactly. <laughs> we um we we um so this year we 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 just decided to again focus the whole thing on recycling. They've been doing a fairly good job at different times, but um it's been sort of it had been slightly declining a little. But we thought we'd sort of concentrate on the toilets as well. Um, it's an amazing amount of stuff that in in the actual toilets at Majors Creek this year. Uh, I can't remember. We had about twenty bins with an average weight of about one hundred and twenty kilos, um, which are now sitting on a property. We've mixed them down with a lactobacillus inoculant, which I mentioned before. And the property owner tells me he had a sniff the other day, and they smell beautiful. Well, as much as toilet waste ever smells beautiful, but um, eventually, <laughs> once that's sat for the period where it no longer becomes a worry in terms of the regulations, it will actually go straight into a compost mix. Um, we've already put all the cardboard food waste that we didn't use. Um, all the cardboard food waste and other materials went out in a trailer in between two very large rows of turkey waste, and we just covered that up, so that's already composting. But we ended up with Majors Creek this year a 91% diversion. It's pretty good. That's pretty respectable, I reckon. But hmm. yeah. well, we also ran, was really interesting, the thing that we got really excited about was he also ran a series of workshops on food. So... We had uh, David Harbwick, an agricultural ecologist, Martin Royds, a local farmer, and myself. Um, I was actually taking buckets of food waste, food preparation waste from the stalls and putting it through a macerator, mixing it with inoculant and molasses and showing people how you can make a, a liquid fertiliser out of your own. You could do it in, a, in your whiz in your kitchen if you wished. It's such a simple, simple process. And we had, on average, for every one of the workshops, and I think we had eight or nine workshops over the weekend, we had 20 to 25 people each time huge amounts of interest so and we put it just to show our confidence in the toilets we put the we put the workshop tent right smack next to the toilet so (laughs) no odor in there folks well it's also a good spot because everybody's going there absolutely we had a good passing crowd (laughs) yeah Yeah. but um there are there are a few things we'd like to do differently next year we need to have a a a gents urinal thing Uh, for most people who aren't aware of it when urine leaves the human body it turns to ammonia and when it hits the ground it's converted by nitrosinomas into a nitrite and then by nitrobacter into a nitrate so it's a wonderful source of nitrogen and so currently if we think if we could actually create a separate system for the gents to have a pee so we just and we think all that needs to be and i think dan was mentioning this or someone else was mentioning to me they've seen a pissery sort of thing that the french used to have in their streets so you're just basically a hessian frame where somebody can go and pee into a piece of um just um, sewer pipe that's draining down into a 240 litre bin and then you just keep changing the 240 litre bin and when you're finished you've got all that captured urine that's separated out because the blokes as many of them might do in the middle of the night, go and pee behind a tree, but um, most people are very conscious of that. But when gentlemen go into toilets and pee in a toilet when they've had about um, eight schooners of Guinness, um, sometimes they make a bit more mess of the toilet and a lady comes in to use the toilet and she's got to sit in the consequences. So yeah, that it's would really never important. happen at a festival, would it? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and we were, what, the battle for us was a competition, competition with portaloos. And as anybody knows, has been to a to a festival where, or an event where portal is, they're disgusting. I mean, they're 
good luck to the Portaloo people, but they're a solution, but they're a pretty sticky, woeful solution. Um, we used a lactobacillus inoculant in each of the two. So the, basically the system is the one that Dan Waters used at Corenbrank. It was designed originally by Hamish Skirmer of Natural Event, and it's used at, at the Glastonbury Fest- Festival as well. They have thousands of them. It's basically, for all intents and purposes, a 240-litre wheel bin that's wheeled in under the toilet seat, and you have to go up a few steps to get into the toilet. Um, we used sawdust, which is the old traditional way for anybody who's over 50 in this country, they'd remember pan toilets. Um, and when you finish using the toilet, you throw in a handful of sawdust with your paper or whatever. Um, and, and all we did from time to time was when we went in to replace the toilet rolls, we just gave it a bit of a spray with the inoculant. So the lactobacillus contains a tiny little amount of alcohol, so not only does it keep the odours down, it keeps the flies away, and it also starts processing those, those solids immediately. Yeah, right. So uh, I've heard of lactobacillus. Is that in yoghurt? Yeah, same tent, different desert. So what we do is we make a lactobacillus inoculant um, by capturing rice water. You can get this information on, it's all open source stuff. So we're really keen in the Zero Waste International Trust and Resource Recovery Australia and not having any sort of bum-bum, poo-poo secret stuff. Um, so it's all open source. It's community commons. Um, you can make a rice water mixture just use, using rice and a, a jar of water with a loose-fitting lid. After about four days, you mix that down with milk. And, of course, milk grows people and cows and things. It has an enormous range of proteins and stuff in it um, and nutrients. So we then use that milk. The milk will, for, after about two days, form a cheese on top. And the, and the inoculant base is underneath. So you pour that inoculant off, mix it with 100% water, molasses to stabilise it, and that's your base inoculant. And we do all sorts of extensions out of that to process animals and things. But, um, yeah, that's the base product that we were using at Majors Creek. So, yeah, it's the same. There's lots of different animals in there, lots of things that are captured from the air, but lactobacillus is, the, is one of the principal characters in the mix, yeah. Yeah, right. So you, you also took, um, like you were saying, all the cardboard boxes and, and other stuff. Um, how, 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 did you, how did you encourage people to, to have waste that was compostable? All right. So when anybody who came into the grounds who was registered as a camper was given three little bags that were folded up with a little wraparound DL length, so it's the length of an envelope, little thing that said... What we want you to do with these bags is put your food waste into it, keep it up off the ground so you're not feeding any of the goannas or the local dogs and cats. Um, and once the bag is full, take it over and put it into the organics bin. So we had three 240-litre wheel bins with the organics one in the middle. We had recycling on one end with the yellow lid and, and a waste bin on the other end. And so what we were trying to do is demonstrate to people if they recycle all their bottles and cans and if they recycle their food waste, their waste bin should be theoretically almost empty which it was in most instances. Um, and then with the actual stall holders themselves, they were told when they leased a stall that we were going to be concentrating on food, that they would receive a 15-litre bucket. Um, we, we, only, we chose a small bucket because it limits what people can put into it, and we just had our people go, our volunteers just went around and picked up those buckets regularly. They brought them back to me at, at the tent where we were doing workshops we put that food waste through a macerator with inoculant again and showed people how to make a foliar fertiliser. If we had too much of that in the end and we mixed, we put that into a trailer with all the cardboard boxes and things, just a high-sided trailer. And so all of that material then went out to Martin Royd's property where, as I said before, it was put in between, it was put in between um, two big rows of turkey waste. 
Um, but yeah, we just um, stayed right on top of it all the time. Notices all around the grounds, telling people exactly what we were trying to do. Um, the the local council administrator who opened the event, Tim Overall, told reinforced that at, at the opening of the event as well. Um, yeah, we just cut, hammered people all the time, and people uh, were very willing to participate. And the only disappointment for us is we didn't have quite enough bins. If we would have had more council recycling bins, we could have recycled even more. Yeah, nice one. Nice one. It's pretty amazing, really. Um, and one of the things that I often wonder about at festivals is the um, the cornstarch plates and cutlery. Yep. How, how does that work? I mean, you're talking about a, a clean waste stream and source separation and stuff. What do you do with this thing? It people just, people are unfamiliar with them. What happens if it winds up in the paper box? Well, all that all that stuff in that particular in that instance at Majors Creek, all of that material. Um, people are told that if they're going to have a stall, there's a certain criteria that they can have. They can only use certain sorts of packaging material, and all of that material has to be compostable. So all of that, all the paper, all the cardboard, all the packaging, all the food waste goes into the into the compost stream. Yeah, right, right. But the average punter might not have figured that out. Well, we hammer that all the time. We yeah, let them right. know all the time, yeah. constantly, to the point of irritation. Mm. That, that, and we had the MCs on all of the stages doing that reinforcing all the time too, that all the stuff that you're eating off and the stuff that you're eating can go into the compost bin. Yeah, yeah well, I guess that gets to communication. And, and Absolutely. How, how did communication figure into the whole scheme of it? Well, just basically all that, just hand notices. It was in the program. It was on the stages. It was it was constantly reinforced by posters around the grounds. Um, yeah, just constantly telling people what what our expectation of what they were to do with their waste was. Um, and participation was pretty good. Engagement, as as Mal said before about the issue of clean stream, whether it's clean stream or city to soil, the most important thing you can do with a recycling system is engage and excite people with the notion that they're doing something that's different and especially as Mal said before if you're saying to them we need this stuff clean because it's going to grow food and you might be eating that food people get that you know because it's a very very simple notion mm. no I mean it's it's somehow it's it's tedious to say it year on year on year on year but if I find myself talking to people who are setting up systems and they always want to actually when they give you the budget, there's a you know one percent of the budget is is for communication, and you say no, you know fifty percent of the budget is for communication. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, well. you've got problems next year and the year after, and that and certainly if you're doing it on a municipal scale or a city scale, then for two years before you start, you, you're telling people what's going to happen, why it's going to happen. You run workshops, you talk to the church and all the groups communicate. You cannot communicate too much, uh, and that means subdividing your communication into 15 different languages if that's what's needed because you know asian communities and all the rest of it need need their own reasons for doing it they, they need to own it as well and uh, where that hasn't happened and it hasn't happened largely right across the board in england um things just stall and get more get more difficult because people haven't been communicated with properly yeah. scotty i'm really aware that you're running out of time for, for the show pretty soon do, do oh no we got another half hour have we yeah i was just gonna i was just gonna mention that workshop again in queenbean if people are interested on the 30th um yeah. speaking of a, communication yeah, yeah. absolutely <laughs> well it's Very important apt. that we get as many people there as we can we're, we're, whether they be from council or government or just local community people who have a, have an interest in that or an interest in the idea of as mel said before developing a business 
just locally. Um, yeah, um, people can call me on my mobile if they like. It's 0407 956 458. That's 0407 956 458 if they'd like more information about that anyway. Yeah, nice one, nice one. I, I think I know a few people who would probably be interested in that. Um, I think it's free and it comes with a meal. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> you get food. Yeah, well, you mentioned, you mentioned Repair Cafe earlier and... Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a new repair cafe starting up in Canberra, actually. So. Is there? I wasn't aware yeah. of that. That's excellent. Yeah, so keep your, keep your ears to this show and we'll, we'll get there soon. That's excellent. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. I think, you know, overall, the, the mission isn't just about recycling. And, it's not, and uh, it is a lot more about food waste and quality of life. But ultimately, and I, I'm sitting here for, for this reason, it's, it's about social change and about actually claiming back um, human qualities in the way in which we we live our lives uh, away from the global the global marketplace which is fundamentally destroying just about everything you look at um, certainly it's alienating people um, certainly that th- they want people to be alienated so that they could be served all this pap and um, and distracted by all sorts of things that, that take away quality of life so quality of food as Jerry said is a really good starting point Saying positive things about about recycling, i.e., you can recycle ninety percent of, uh, you know, you can actually achieve reducing waste by ninety percent without blinking, and then worry about the last five percent when you get there. Um, those are all positive messages which which actually help to to create what I like to call increasing competence in a community, so that the community actually uh, becomes a living organism in its own sense, and people get a happier life. It's, you know, it's to do with um, it's to do with happiness, really. Yeah, yeah. So I guess on the on the larger scale, um, the, the volume of waste it would be ever growing. With our not by our definition, yeah. If you get everything separated at the source, then no waste is created in the first place. So the waste industry disappears. Mm, yes, good wouldn't point. that be nice? Good point. Yes, mm. yes. <laughs> but the, I guess the the source, the 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 reason we have stuff to deal with, just yes. the volume of stuff moving through society, yeah. is that a problem in itself? Or? Yes. Because it's planned. It's planned. I mean, and somebody once said um, um, that in the 50s, uh, American kind of marketing gurus were saying uh, that we're going to have to grow our economies year on year on year exponentially. They knew the mathematics of it all. With a, with a fixed planet, a finite planet and growing populations, we have to grow our, our production, our GDP and all those sort of things. We've got to grow year on year on year because um, that's the way in which we create the money streams that we draw our salaries from. That's the con. Yes, yes, it's a big thing. I mean, you're, you're with the, uh, the Zero Waste International Trust, both of you. I mm-hmm. mean, yeah. what, why did you... What is a trust? What's a trust? Well, um, essentially, <laughs> it's, a good, it's a very good question because there's lots of trusts that are not trustworthy, um, <laughs> frankly. Um, but uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's doing things not for money. Uh, I know that sounds a bit altruistic because it's not actually not for expenses, but it does mean that we're not trying to accumulate capital in the way in which billionaires do, you know, and trying to stash it away on some island and, you know, just to uh, aid my own ability to have a new plastic boat every year. Um, 
No, I, I mean, we do things for the, for, for the objects that we write down in the trust documents, and our object is to, is to promote the zero-waste idea and, and all the things we've been talking about. In other words, uh, putting information into, into, the, into, the, into the common space so everybody can use it, so that we're, we're not patenting any of this stuff, we're not, uh, we haven't, we're not buying, you know, registering the IP or anything like that and making mozzas out of it. We're actually doing it for, for the benefit of um, humanity, <laughs> if you like. And sometimes people just don't trust that for some reason or other. They can't believe that people will be altruistic. It's kind of difficult. <laughs> it's amazing when you look at the structures that already exist of, say, I mean, you just mentioned before Walter Genie, um, there are there are people here who've been working on soils for a long time. There are organic growers. There's the yeah. Biodynamic Association of Australia. There are permaculture organisations. There are seed saver groups. There's Vandana Shiva in in India. Mm. There's so many people around the world. There's the the Sustainability Food Trust in the UK. So what we'd like to see happen is if we plug all these people in under this common message that you all produce waste. That's the starting point for yeah. for the production of food. That's the engagement point for the community. That's where you can begin to make a real difference because we're all trying to head in this one direction. At the moment, we look like um, a, a, a skyrocket that's just exploded and we're all going in 3,000 different directions. But if we can pull that into a single vein, we have enormous political and social power, enormous political and social power. I mean, we could defeat almost anything that's out there in terms of direction and getting change to happen if we all work together. Absolutely. Well said. So I guess um, you're talking about there capturing people and putting them into the food cycle as opposed to sort of the, the linear economics we have now. I mean, what's, what's, you want to unpack the sort of linear versus cyclical Well, it's becoming, it's and becoming fashionable to, to, to talk about it, certainly in Europe, and I know here as well, uh, as the circular economy. Um, and, you know, what, what we have to be wary of, though, is people, like we have find with the zero waste movement, uh, we had the altruism of the zero waste movement, meaning no waste at all. And along came the waste industry and started saying zero waste to landfill. And they sort of hijacked the, 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 the term zero waste and said, oh, yeah, we're doing, we're doing zero waste as well. When, when, instead of burying it, we're burning it. You know, I mean, you know, it's, that's, that's a nonsense, a complete nonsense. So we have to be wary of, of, of labels. And circular economy at the moment, I don't think, has been particularly challenged. But it's only a matter of time before somebody has a bright spark and starts um, you know, um, registering IP called circular <laughs> economy so they can make loads of money out of it. Look, there's a gold mine in that idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And that's not to say that people shouldn't actually you know, make a salary or make, make a living out of promoting the circular economy because good i hope they do um but ultimately and altruistically the circular economy is what we've been talking about nothing goes back to the land that, that, that damages the land it's it's the triple bottom line accounting you don't just account for money you account for the social impacts and the environmental impacts in equal amounts you don't you don't prioritize one over the other in fact, any any kind of bias towards any one of the three legs of sustainability means you haven't got a sustainable circumstance. You've got one that's just biased towards money making, or biased towards the environment, or biased towards people. You've got to get the balance. Otherwise, it's a bit of a nonsense by definition. I think. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But um, I don't know. Um, let's just duck back to trusts because we were quite interested on this show on different ways of organizing what we do in the world and 
and trusts are one that I've had trouble getting any information on. They seem to be a big secret. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, what, what's the benefit of having a trust if you want to be altruistic and changing the world as opposed to some other sort of business entity? Well, to a certain extent, yeah. I mean, there is a temptation um, to say, well, we'll just work together collaboratively and we trust each other. So there's that trust, the implicit altruistic trust. I trust whatever Jerry says and he trusts whatever I say, I hope, you know, uh, because we work together closely. Um, but in terms of if you're trying to do something that's going to have longevity and, you and you know, we're, we're getting, you know, towards the end of our careers, let's put it that way, <laughs> um, we're the old geezers, um, uh, then you can create an organisation that you have a choice so a company is one organization you can create that you can actually then um, put people into and the company itself has everlasting life because that's the nature of companies and the people can change but the company objectives can still be there and so you're you're recruiting on a job description in a sense you know um, saying do you believe in what it says in our trust documents do you want to actually help us achieve those objectives which are whatever they are and then if people sign up for that then they're signed up for doing things in the right way and if they don't do things in the right way then they can be sacked just like people uh, you know uh, employees in any organization who let's say go astray you know um so yeah um but it could be just just it could just be a, a, a trading company it could which is limited by guarantee um rather than by shareholding as soon as you introduce shareholding you, you introduce the notion of people making money in the background shareholder um which i think is what's wrong with the world you know that these disinterested shareholders are, are making decisions we are not we haven't got people who are interested in uh, farming actually running the the largest farms they're they're people who know how to add up numbers and make an extra point zero one percent yield or something or other and they don't live anywhere near where the action is you know they're, they're so remote yes. and therefore that you know if you've got that sort of remote situation you've got people who could manipulate it to, to whatever they want and it, it's it's i think it's really sad that uh, we're we're actually um what's the word um you know we're becoming less skilled all the time. All the only skills that seem to matter are those skills about moving huge amounts of money around in the money markets and and, and creating vast multinational corporations that flood our high streets. The, the small shops and the small they, they can't exist anymore because um, they can't they get out competed by these these huge chains. One thing that's very interesting too about operating under a trust model is is the natural exchange you get from um, from one group to another. We think now, and it's lovely. Because I, th I think Arla Guthrie said in a song one time, talking about now Alice's Restaurant. You know, when something becomes a movement, it, we we think we moved from being a sort of organisational structure to a movement about ten years ago, as we don't know what's happening with the zero waste bloody movement anywhere now and around the world. We've got something like we think three hundred communities, some of those in places like. Egypt, if people look up zero waste um, or zero waste Europe particularly or the zero waste international alliance they'll find that there are enormous numbers of, of organizations out there so yes. as we say we think there's about 300 some of them are recycling 98 percent some of them are recycling 95 percent some are at five and some of them are just thinking about it but there are examples in places like Japan where people are sorting into dozens and dozens of different categories um, so it depends on local enthusiasm, local injection of funds, but the, but the common idea among them all is this notion among people overall that waste is a mistake. And if we actually take those materials and use them locally for internal benefit, then you get a hell of a lot out of it. 
you know, very often you've got, um, there are certain subjects that people are always experts at, and one of which is um, golf, um, driving a car for men, <laughs> um, sex, drugs and rock and roll we can have a little laugh at. Um, uh, but what uh, education and, and waste are the, are the two I've come across, because those are my chosen careers in a sense. And everybody's an expert on education, uh, and everybody's an expert on waste. Um, so it's it, it, you're not talking to a disengaged uh, audience. Everybody, oh, I've got room for the bins. Uh, you know, there's always something. Um, and what am I going to do with the tyres and the yoghurt pots? And uh, uh, endless conversations to be had. So there's a lot of interest in waste, even though it's a yucky subject and uh, in, hitherto has been sort of ignored to a certain extent. Mm, I guess that makes it easier yeah. to engage, no? Yeah, because, but, well, easier and more difficult at the same time. Because, mm. yeah, you, you, you've got... You, more difficult in the sense you've got to spend time yes. arguing, it, arguing it through and maybe showing people the paper mills, maybe showing them the processes that you're going to put the stuff through. When they get that, when they see that and they feel like they've been spoken to as human beings, adults, they do, there's no doubt about it in my mind, they do want to engage because they see the sense of it in the way Jerry was saying earlier, certainly on the food side of it. And so that's, that's the optimism, if you like, is that you've got a subject that um, is of interest to everybody, even if they say, oh, I don't talk about that. You know, they actually do want to talk about it, especially if it's going to change and the council's going to give them a new bin and not tell them what to do with it, because then it becomes a riot. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what's the role of, of councils and governments and regulatory bodies in all of this? I think in, in lots of ways, it's a question for them of just sort of keeping an open mind and seeing what's in the marketplace. There's an interesting thing that's happening at this uh, this. Uh, workshop on the 30th we've got a fellow from a company called GDT who is uh, I think it's GDT um, a tyre recycling company that's just opening in Warren now for Australia one of the biggest issues we have are are tyres if you look at the ACT population about 350,000 on average you produce one tyre for every single person every year and so out of Belcon and Landfill, I worked with the ACT government many years ago, there's something like 11, somewhere between 11 million and 17 million tyres buried in that strip down between where the worm farm used to be right down to where the resource recovery area is. Uh, those tyres, with this process, this company starting up in Warren, can actually be turned into oil so they can recover the oil and they can recover the carbon black and they recover the steel. It's a practical process. They can use it to generate energy on the spot at the same time. It's a non-polluting process. And so it's a question of keeping your eyes on the ball and seeing what's out there. Um, And Mal talked about technologies before. It depends on how far you want to send the paper. There's always something you can do with paper, from composting to turning it into cardboard boxes or back into paper. Plastics are precisely the same. It's just a question of of taking that material, separating it and turning it into some glass, as has been known for a long, long time, as organics we've already discussed. So it's just a question of what's the most appropriate technology for use in your area... (coughs) And which of those technologies is going to give you the best return on investment for your community? And it might be something very, very localised. It might be, as I said before, turning um, paper and cardboard into egg cartons in your local community or, or putting cardboard mixed down with your, with your biosolids instead of setting fire to it. Or you know, There are lots and lots of options, but the options entirely depend on you. So as I said, if, if people want to come to this event on the 30th in Queanbeyan, we will have somebody there talking about tyres. We'll have somebody there talking about organic waste. Somebody talking about mattress recycling, which is now happening under Resource Recovery's banner of soft landings here in the ACT. Um, and we'll have Mal talking about 
a whole range of things. And he'll, he'll, we'll also have people there from the New South Wales EPA who'll be talking about the container deposit system that's, start, that's supposedly starting up next year in New South Wales. Um, so there's, there's, there's going to be lots of different things. But it's as I said, it's about keeping your mind open and in lots of ways keeping your heart open. You know? um, but under, underpinning all of that and coming back to the need to take that organic material out, one of the things that we'll be stressing in this workshop is, as Mal said at the very beginning, the soil is your mother. You know, everything you are, everything you ever will be depends on what you eat. So it's fundamental that out of all of these processes, the principal thing we do is protect the soil. Yeah, right. So another, another, um, another function I can see of the, of the, the government and the regulatory thing would be like a, a parallel to what you guys did at the festival with the, with the storeholders and saying, well, if you're going to produce material here, make... It has to be compostable. Yeah. I mean, how? What? What are the barriers to governments sort of legislating the toxic or the the useless I, I stuff or the ge- generally high the, energy waste? The biggest barriers there are, are people who are well moneyed and I mean, look, the people in Australian politics, as they have around the world, have talked about this for years. The fact that we allow enormous political donations to political parties influences lobbyists influence the decisions that are made all the time. If you're a large waste company, you're much better off to influence the decisions of government about whether, as Mel said, an incinerator costs a lot of money. We fought very hard against an incinerator on the Isle of Man many, many years ago. The Isle of Man's a tiny little block of land that the Vikings landed on um, yeah. in the Irish Sea some years ago. Um, but it was interesting, the proposition there was they were going to build this incinerator for something like 10 or £15 million pounds, and they were going to charge every household, six, was going to charge, I think it was £60 pound a tonne to set fire to their waste. Um, <laughs> and and the idiocy of that is it has soils not dissimilar to Australia. It could do with loads and loads of, of soil organic material. We were, I was saying on a radio interview there that for sixty pound a ton, I could give you a small boy with a white towel over his arm, standing at your gate, whopping the excess cat food out of a tin and placing it gently into a little wheelbarrow that he pulled onto the next house for less money than that. It's just sheer bloody stupidity that we go to these financial solutions that cost billions or millions of dollars that have these put what the Americans call put and pay contracts. So when they sign you up to a contract to an incinerator. You have to sign a deal that says you have to feed that incinerator for 20 years. So you get these bizarre situations where the Swedes claim, oh, we're doing this massive job of recycling. Well, what they're actually doing is setting fire to everything because they started a recycling program and people demanded that 40% of material be recycled. So then suddenly they find they can't feed the incinerator and now they import waste from somewhere else to set fire to it. Mm. It's, it's, it's public-private partnership, isn't absolutely, it? Absolutely, yeah. Wonderful stuff. Yeah, so it's it. how do you break down those financial interests is one of the really big things. Or or how do you put community interest above the financial interests of, of the engineering fraternity who would like to, as with the banking fraternity, like to sell you something that's worth millions and millions of dollars? What are the things that you need to do, really, if you're answering the question practically, is to actually harmonise the way in which contracts are actually begin where they begin and end? Because one of the ways in which, in, let's call it the vested interests for the moment, um, can actually keep things as they are is to make sure there's disharmony in those contracts. So, for example, a local authority will buy a set of compactor trucks because the system they're using needs these 
200,000-pound compactor trucks. Then somebody comes along uh, five years, halfway through the life of those compactor trucks and builds an incinerator and signs a 25-year contract that says those compactor trucks are going to take stuff to the incinerator. So then you've got to wait for the incinerator contract to run out before you can make any changes because all the waste has got to go to that incinerator, as Jerry says. Even if, <laughs> even if you, you, all your community suddenly says, no, we're going to recycle everything, they still have to pay as if they're supplying that. So they call fresh air clauses mm. in the contract. Right, and that means the incinerator can actually go. Oh, yippee! You know, everybody's recycling, so we can actually offer our incinerator capacity. We're already getting paid for it, but we can offer it really cheaply to the to the local authority next door, and that distorts their marketplace, so on and so forth. So, if you're in government, then you need to look at where the where contracts begin and end, and say they've got to they, they coordinate them, so that you can actually make changes when contracts end, because it is reasonable that people who've invested, if, whether you're private or public investment in one way of doing things you you invest on the basis that you're going to sweat the capital until you know the contract ends and you make your money as predicted and all the rest of it mm-hmm. and that's understandable you know, I mean we're not arguing with, against that but if you're going to get change and god we do need change then you've got to actually also plan for those exigencies you know for those for those circumstances and i don't see any signs so far anyway of that happening much hmm. across the board. I guess the government's renewed every few years and there's not really well, much corporate knowledge left in there. Well, when you look at it, governments change every four years, the contracts change every seven, bigger contracts change every 20. If you mix it all together, there's chaos all the time. Hmm. You know, everybody's got a reason for saying they'll leave things as they are all the time. Hmm. So that's, the, that's, the, that's your resistance to change. So do you reckon on a planetary scale this can sort of be done without sort of redesigning the, the basic materials that we use in our, our everyday life? And, and I, think, I think we're well on the way to actually getting... Uh, we, we've been very pleasantly surprised by the way the zero-waste movement's taken off around the world. Mm. As I say, once we got to a stage where we had people complaining that they didn't know that there was something happening in South America that was happening in such and such or who organised the bloody meeting in Sao Paulo and didn't tell us about it or why weren't we invited <laughs> to San Francisco? You know, th- So that chaotic um, circumstance means that people have picked it up and are running with it, I think. Yeah. Um, and it's emphasising that community power. And as Mal says, um, we're in many ways what we refer to as the smoke under the door. We're in the room, folks, we're, and I think we're in a good chance of we're in a good position to sort of take over a very large part of the industry, provided the community aware is aware of how powerful they are in containing and looking after their own resources. Mm, and should the community be thinking about how to design, say, community-owned enterprises and provide jobs in their own thing about that there's sort lots of, of now so they can go for the contracts in the yeah, future? Yeah, I think there's lots of models there. There, there are probably... Uh, Mal mentioned before the Community Recycling Network in the UK and the mm. fact that a lot of us in different places have said, hey, look at this, it's worth a lot of money. But we've got to be really careful. With organisations like Resource Recovery Australia, they have very structured organisational makeup so that people can't just walk in and take their contract off them. And mm. that's what we've done in many instances, particularly in the Community Recycling Network in the UK is almost gone now, isn't it, Mel? But yeah. Basically because we said, oh, there's a lot of value in this. And then the contracts are rewritten to, to make more value for large waste companies. Mm. So it's basically been handed to people on a platter. Yeah, yes. no, we can't. And we create the value by coming in from the fringe. Like, we, like I mentioned, that's where change comes from. The idea is to put on the table, create the value, create the marketplace, and then somebody comes along and buys it, like, 
like they buy the pot of po- at poker, you know, and I'll just raise you $10 million. You go, oh, <laughs> all you can do is walk through the door and yeah. leave it all behind. All right, well, we are out of time now. Is there anything else you want to add before we go? Apart from plugging that meeting next um, on the 30th in Queanbeyan, that's oh, a lot of good airtime we got for them. Maybe we I, should charge can, them, Mel. <laughs> Zero Waste International Trust should give them a bill. Well, I think, uh, you know, from the way I see it is um, that we're at a, a crucial moment in history and, and the, the big danger of um, us not adopting this circular economy notion, if you like, is the fact that the, 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 the linear economy is going to run away from us and, and global warming is the big, the climate change is the big sign to say you've got to put a stop to that. If I could just say, I'm finishing too, um, if people should remember the National Folk Festival is on at Easter, but also to plant very firmly in their minds that the um, Majors Creek Festival is on in November again this year. Mm. Thanks for the invitation too, Scotty. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> well, we'll see you at the, one of those festivals, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, right, well, this is Behind the Lines signing off. Um, yeah, here's the formidable vegetable sound system once again with You Are What You Eat.